0: Welcome back to another episode of Product Love hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I sat down with Rand Here, who's the VP of product at Headspace. Headspace is an online healthcare company that specializes in meditation. Headspace is what I would call a mission-driven company, which led Randier and I into a discussion about how being mission-driven impacts a product organization. So Headspace's mission is to improve the health and happiness of the world, and they use that mission as their North Star, their guiding principle. As a product management organization and a company in general, they have no shortage of ideas or initiatives, but they use their North Star as a guide to which idea is going to lead to the improvement of health and happiness of the world. This got me to thinking about how being a mission-driven company affects product management. Does being mission-driven help inspire better product discussions? Is it easier to defeat feature bloat? Well, let me know what you think. Shoot me a note at eBotekipendo.io, or tweet at me at eBodic. Well, welcome over of product. This morning, I am here with Ron Rondeer uh, Ron why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? All right. Uh,
1: thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. I have, uh, I guess, a different background as many product people do. I have an undergrad in economics, got a master's in HR, and uh, worked in very many different disciplines. I started my career in HR, doing recruiting and HR business partner stuff then got a break into product management of HR software, got into marketing. So I was a brand manager for a while, then went back to a business school, got an MBA in technology marketing, and then was at Yahoo in product management at, in different groups for almost seven years. And then spent the last 10 years in startups, in a B2C startup, in a B2B startup, and now at Headspace. And over that time, I've been in multiple disciplines. Product management has always been a core discipline, but I also had the opportunity to lead a marketing team, a sales team, engineering teams, and customer service teams, which are a great experience for me.
0: Yeah, that is quite a diverse background. I mean, other than product, what's been your favorite?
1: I, I don't know if there were any favorites. There was certainly lots of learning and empathy that I've built along the way, so I certainly I empathize for folks in customer service who people don't usually want to call customer service. It's usually a measure of last resort. So I really empathize with them having to deal with people who are ticked off. Sales, I certainly empathize with the, the pressure of carrying a quota and being able to, to deliver against that month after month or quarter after quarter. Marketing, especially with startups, you're trying to get the word out to your target segment on tight budgets and measure the impact. So I think
0: they've all been great learning opportunities for me. Awesome. Well, let's, let's talk about some of your product management times. So you're, you're a product manager at Yahoo in the early 2000s, right? So you've seen how product management has evolved over time to something that's you know, essential to companies. What's changed over the last you know, 20 years? What's surprised you? I think
1: we all know in product management that the only permanent thing is change, but the speed of change is certainly accelerated, I feel, a lot. In the earlier days, it was very much a waterfall methodology. So we still had big releases. There was a lot of planning cycle going into design then into engineering and then a big bang release. And now it's way faster. So you have, in fact, daily releases or multiple times a day, even smaller chunks of functionality, very, very iterative development as a whole, not just an engineering and release perspective, but also... Product discovery, research, development, and then obviously release. So I think the pace of of things coming out is is really much faster now.
0: So talk to me about how you think product management teams operate differently today versus the early two thousands. I
1: think it's uh, become a lot more cross functional. As we were sharing with the speed of product development, it's become a lot more important to be very cross functional throughout the product cycle instead of dealing first with engineering or marketing and. QA, et cetera. And so I think now the, the ability to be able to craft, to be able to understand who the customer is, what kind of problems are we solving for them, not just based on what they're requesting, but really at the core, what is the core problem we're solving? And then be able to sell that to the entire cross-functional team to be able to solicit input and ideas from the entire team. It's uh, The best ideas come from diverse teams and so we always try to create as much diversity, even though that does cause some friction, you really get the best ideas from these kind of diverse teams. So I think the diversity, the collaboration, and the speed are things that are very different.
0: So talk to me about how that affects hiring. Like, What qualities do you look for in product managers? Do you look for technical expertise? And how do you think about overall team makeup?
1: Yeah, I think uh, when in some of the startups, we only had uh, one or two product managers Here at Headspace, we have more. At Yahoo, we obviously had many, you know, uh, hundreds. So I think depending on the size of the team, you can certainly optimize for the diversity of the teams. Usually there are at least four things that I look for. One is a product strategy, which is the ability to really understand the underlying user problem, the market opportunity, et cetera, and be able to frame that in a business case and be able to communicate that to the team so that everyone is clear what they're running at and why. The second one is data analysis. And this includes, of course, the quantitative data analysis in terms of market sizing. It could be product usage data, but it also includes qualitative research. And there's some element of a product manager's gut instinct of have we hit something or is there something more to to dig into? The third one is feature design. And I don't necessarily mean just sketching things or doing wireframes, but really trying to understand what is that experience look like, whether it's an app experience or an entire user experience through email, through an opening of the box, that entire experience, really getting a sense of what would make this delightful for the customer and being able to pull in the right people on the team to help deliver against it. And the fourth one is really execution. All the planning, all the strategy is irrelevant if it never gets out. So uh, this person has to have the, uh, the execution chops, the attention to detail, the ability to make trade-offs in a constrained in an environment where resources may be constrained, timeline is dictated, et cetera. And then in addition, I look for a couple of soft skills. I look for a strong collaborative attitude. So someone who is low ego, who is able to lead the team, but really help the team come up with their own ideas, their own ways of working, and to bring the best out of each member of that team and not necessarily feel like they have to be in charge and always coming up with the ideas. And the second one is really this passion for building engaging products. And you can see that in how they spend their time, how they dissect other products. Great product managers are always on the lookout for just great products or opportunities to make things better. So I really look for that passion.
0: I like that. I like that passion. So let's go back to some of your experiences. Let's talk a little bit about Yahoo first, and then we'll talk about Headspace. But you know, you were a product manager at Yahoo back in the heyday, right, when it was crushing it. Talk to me about what it was like to be a product manager back then.
1: I was uh, incredibly surprised at how small the teams were at Yahoo. I started in 2002, and from the outside, I'd seen these uh, iconic products like Yahoo Mail, Messenger, Finance, News, et cetera the MyYahoo product, and all these teams had just a few engineers. So there were usually under a dozen engineers on each of those teams, and one product manager, a designer, et cetera. So I was really surprised at these products that had huge number of users using them, and they were just created by really small teams. And that was a great lesson to me on what small teams, the right teams with the right technologies could achieve, and it was huge impact. So that was the biggest thing that really stuck for me. It was also very, I guess, island-like in a sense, which is each of the properties or each of these products worked pretty much in isolation. And over time we slowly started to get the idea that we could there were better synergies if we could pull things together. So we started incorporating news into the homepage of Yahoo Mail, for instance, or yahoo.com and my Yahoo came closer together. So we slowly started Realizing the benefits of this kind of collaboration and integration, even though it added complexity to the way the teams worked.
0: So, talk to me about that decision. That's kind of interesting that you went down that line, even though it added complexity. How did you guys deal with it?
1: Oh, the numbers really spoke to the the value of doing that. So, as an example, people who we saw that people who were coming to Yahoo Mail hadn't uh, there was very low overlap between some of the other properties like Yahoo News or even My Yahoo. They would just come directly to Yahoo Mail. And that was similar to a lot of the lead properties, for, for example, even Yahoo Finance or my Yahoo. People who loved a particular product just tended to go directly to that product. And we saw that when we could get people involved in two or three different products within Yahoo, their overall usage spiked dramatically. So it was obviously a huge benefit to the company if we could get them exposed to more of these products that made sense. And so that's where, once we were able to share that data and show that it was a win-win for the individual products, but also for the whole company, people were able to get behind that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great case of showing data that drives, in this case, added complexity maybe from a dev side, but has serious compounding influence or effects, right? Absolutely. So now now you're over at a tech company that revolutionizes how people view mental health, right? Right. Headspace, you guys make it accessible for people to improve their mental health. What inspired you to join Headspace? Uh, This role at Headspace was just a dream job for me. And the reason I say that is
1: I've been a meditator for over 25 years. And it's always been part of my personal experience. I've been going for these uh, 10-day vipassana, silent meditation retreats since my early 20s. And being in, in Silicon Valley, being in the tech industry, I certainly appreciate the value of just unplugging and and going dark for uh, 10 days to to just decompress and keep my sanity in a sense. But it was always a personal passion and personal journey. I never thought that the two would, would come together. And it's come together in just an amazing way where I'm able to combine all the stuff that I've learned and my passion for product management and product development with a product that I truly believe in and use every day.
0: So it sounds like it was a pretty easy uh, you know, decision for you to join Headspace. Absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about running product at Headspace. What's it like? It's
1: a huge opportunity and it's also a huge responsibility. And I think it's a great time to, for us to be at uh, Headspace because it's, mental health is really coming out of the shadows. It's almost like where physical fitness was maybe 10, 15 years ago. Where earlier, if you talk to someone about uh, physical fitness or physical health, it was almost seen as a negative. It's like, oh, do you think I need to lose weight or you know, I'm not in shape? Is that why you're talking to me? It had that negative connotation, the negative vibe. Whereas now, when you talk to somebody about going to the gym or running or any type of physical exercise, it's seen as a positive thing and an investment in ourselves, regardless of whether there's something wrong or not. And it's almost, you can, it's okay to be proactive and to care about yourself. And I feel like that's where our mental health is now. There are a lot of popular folks who are coming out of the shadows and talking about their experiences with mental health, their struggles with mental health, their use of meditation. Some of these folks have been lifelong meditators, but as they describe themselves, they'll say we were closet meditators and that they wouldn't feel comfortable telling people that they meditated. It was a private experience. And now you see a lot more of that out in public where people are very comfortable talking about meditation and talking about uh, mental health in general. So I think it's a great time for all of us in this industry, for, especially for us in Headspace. And with that growing market uh, comes a lot of pressures, all good, good challenges of growth, lots of opportunity. And we also, we, have to, we still have to prioritize and decide which of those opportunities we're gonna focus on and why. But it's, it's really an exciting time to be at Headspace and in this industry at this time.
0: So I would describe Headspace as a mission-driven company. I assume you'd agree with that. Does that impact how you run a product org? I think in some ways it raises the stakes because
1: our mission is to improve the health and happiness of the world. And that's a big mission. So we use this as our North Star, and we use this to evaluate which initiatives we should invest in. We have a lot of opportunities internally that our teams generate, lots of initiatives, lots of ideas. We get a lot of ideas from our customers, from our members who would like us to do this or that. So there's, there's no shortage of opportunities and ideas to evaluate. And we try to use this, this guide of how do we help, which one of these is going to improve the health and happiness of the world the most, and try and attack that in a structured manner. But uh, it's really exciting because the opportunities are huge.
0: So let's talk a little bit about finding product market fit, right? How are you using different discovery techniques to improve the chance of product market fit? How did you do that at Headspace? And then maybe we can even dig in a little bit to how you balance the free part of the offering that Headspace provides with you know, the premium part that's paid for. Absolutely.
1: And maybe I'll address that second part first. We are a premium offering because our goal is to improve the health and happiness of the world. We always have some level of content that's available for free. And because our goal is to just help people to learn to meditate and to have better mental health. So there's always that free level of service. And of course, if you pay, you get access to over 600 hours of content, you get daily content. So there's, and content is constantly being updated. So you have content, you have services. So there's a lot of advantages to being a paying member and we have over a million paying subscribers. So that's exciting. We have over 38 million members who've used the product at some point as well. So those are ways that we try to make sure that we're staying true to our mission and still providing value and still providing an opportunity for people to to take advantage of the paying service. So the the company really started as an events company back in 2010. So Andy and Rich, who are our co-founders, started Headspace as an events company, and so they would run these kind of meditation workshops. And that gave them a unique experience and ability to interact with their customers and see what was working and what wasn't working. And once they saw what was working, they had the system dialed in, they took that approach and put it into an app. And that's when we launched our first app in 2012. And we've been iterating through multiple versions uh, up to now. But that really helped us get the formula, if you will, through the live interactions with our early customers in England. And so I think that, that was just a great way for us to get that early product discovery and early product market fit and now what we've we've done is to make sure that we're able to communicate the value for people who are looking for solutions to different problems so sleep is a great example where over 70 million americans struggle with sleep and that involves uh, struggles with falling asleep with staying asleep meaning they sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and have trouble falling back asleep so We have that, we have our sports and movement sections, we have workplace sections where people may be struggling with uh, anxiety before interviews, anxiety before a large presentation, et cetera. So being able to customize the program
0: to different
1: needs that people may have at different points in their life.
0: Awesome. Now you're also the lead for San Jose's chapter of Products.Count. First, can you tell us a little bit about what Products.Count is? For any listeners that don't know?
1: Sure. Products That Count is uh, available and more info is available at productsthatcount.com. It's a nonprofit organization that has over 20,000 members. And these are primarily product managers or people who want to get into product management. And we host many events all across the country, San Francisco, San Jose, New York, Seattle, etc. And we bring in leading lights of product management from different parts of the industry b2c b2b etc and their short talks about 30 minutes followed by q a and the goal is for these leaders to share lessons that they've learned along the way advice that they might give their younger self etc for the next generation of product managers to learn from them and be able to accelerate their career
0: so you get exposed to a lot of product managers through the organization and, and also in your job What common trends or problems do you hear PMs, product managers discussing these days?
1: I'd say by far the biggest problem is product market fit. So being able to hone into a segment or a problem that has, uh, that they've been able to identify well enough and target well enough, and then to craft a solution that really nails it for that segment. I think we all start with some problem that we ourselves experience and then try to create solutions for us which is a great way to start, but then those constantly need to be validated with our core target demographic or target segment to make sure that it resonates for them. So I'd say that's the biggest one. And then uh, probably a side effect of that is engagement and retention. So once you've got a product in market, how do you make sure that uh, people are using it to the frequency that you think they should be using it? How do you price appropriately for that? And really take this concept or this idea and scale it into a business.
0: What advice do you have for PMs that are struggling with product market fit to take your, your first one? I think the best
1: suggestion that I've seen work is to narrow the segment uh, rather than going broad. So there's a huge difference between having a 100% solution for a particular segment in terms of product market fit, engagement, retention, et cetera, and having uh, 60 or 80% fit for that segment. So trying to identify who does your product really work for? Who are these people who come back, who are your raving fans, who come back all the time, who are telling people about it and why? The question that uh, I found most helpful to ask people is, how would you feel if you didn't have access to this product? And if people say they'd be really upset, then really try to drill into who these people are, what parts of the product they use and why they would miss it. What would their next best alternative be? Once you're able to to create a product that really meets the needs of a particular segment, you'll have the data, which you can then use to expand out into other segments. But then you also have the insights into figuring out what particular features you need to invest in to uh, attract other segments as well. But getting it right for the first one or two segments is key to being able to expand beyond that.
0: Yeah, and the other thing you mentioned was engagement. I see PMs struggling to understand what is healthy engagement for their customers, especially with you know, early products, right? Any advice there?
1: Yeah, I think sadly, as with many things in product management, uh, there's no single answer. It does depend. As an example, you can have something like Facebook or WhatsApp on one extreme, which is a product that you would expect people to use not only every day, but many times in a single day. And then there's, uh, there are products, let's say like Airbnb, or airline websites that people may use only a couple of times a year, because that's how often they're booking uh, travel for personal, for vacations. So depending where your product fits on that spectrum, you'll get an idea of uh, what's reasonable to expect usage to be. But just because that's where they are today doesn't mean that that's where you need to be. And I think one of the, the best products that I've seen evolve around this has been something like LinkedIn, and uh, Zillow. So LinkedIn, as an example, is you would use that typically only when you were hiring or when you were looking for a job. And now with all the features and functionality they've added, it's a place that you can go to learn with their acquisition of lynda.com. You can write articles, you can read articles that uh, people in your network have written. So it's really become a hub for your professional development instead of just around hiring or being hired. And similarly with Zillow, which was probably an even worse uh, category, how often do you buy a house? It might be something that you do every five years or 10 years even. But now with different features that they've added, including being able to track the value of your own house, being able to track the different things that are going on in your neighborhood, et cetera, you're at least engaging with this product on maybe a monthly basis instead of every few years.
0: Yeah, things definitely change over time. So talk to me about other common mistakes you see product managers making.
1: I'd say the biggest mistake that I see product managers make is jumping to solutions too early. And what I mean by that is to really have, we at Headspace call this a curious mind, or you'll hear other people calling it a beginner's mind, is to really hold the the problem and be open to multiple solutions and really work with the team to identify what different solutions might be versus locking into a particular solution and charging down the path of doing wireframes or maybe even building a problem. One of the the best questions that I've heard, and this is used both by the design firm IDEO as well as uh, Google in their design sprints is called how might we. And so if you're, trying to find a solution to a particular problem, you phrase it as, how might we help our members do X? So you're really framing the problem and you're leaving the table wide open for all kinds of different solutions to be proposed and really evaluate what might be the best way to solve the problem instead
0: of locking in too early. Great. So, you know, one thing personally, so I've meditated from time to time, total novice there, right? And I've I've always found it personally difficult to get into like a habit. Any advice you'd have for people out there that are kind of delving into meditation?
1: Yeah, meditation is surprisingly hard. Right? On the surface you think, oh, you just have to, to sit somewhere for a few minutes and close your eyes. How hard can that be? And as anyone who's done it a few times realizes it's actually harder than it appears. Uh, the best uh, advice, and we have some amazing behavioral scientists on the team to help us with these kind of questions. The best advice that we've got and the, the best things that we've seen working is to anchor it to some existing habit that you already have. So an example might be uh, somebody who loves coffee might say, I'm going to put my coffee to brew and in the time that from from when I turn it on, I'm going to go get my 10 minute meditation and then come back and have my coffee. So now it's anchored to that action of turning the coffee machine on. For someone else uh, I take the train into work and so for me that's my trigger and that's the habit that I anchor to which is when I get on the train I try not to check email etc till I've done my meditation first. Other people you know it depends on on their one, one person was anchoring to when they come home but before they get home, so they park their car in the garage and meditate for a few minutes in their car before coming in. So it, do, it almost doesn't matter which habit you anchor to, as long as you, it's a habit that you already do daily, and then you attach this new behavior, this new meditation to that habit, that gives it the best chance of success. The other one is having an accountability buddy. And so if you have somebody else that, you know, it doesn't even have to be in the same geography. I have my accountability buddies as my two sisters who live in different countries, one's in Germany, one's in Dubai. And we, we just use Headspace uh, and the buddy system in Headspace to try and keep each other accountable. And when we see someone falling off, we're like, hey, we miss you, come back. And that tends to help bring people back. So I think those two are the most important, anchoring to an existing habit and then having an accountability buddy.
0: I'm glad I jumped back into this topic of meditation. I think those are two great tips. Now, you've been doing this, you've been meditating for 25 years, you said. So talk to me about the benefits you see as a head of a product organization, right? And yeah, a lot of responsibility there. How does meditation help you?
1: I think it really helps all of us. And we start all of our product meetings with three-minute meditation. And I think it's really helpful in multiple ways. One is it helps us in our interactions with each other if for some reason it's really hard to be an ass to one of your teammates that you just meditated with. <laughs> so, and, and we obviously have, you know, it's still, it's an organization, it's a product team. And so we have disagreements. We have different ways of looking at the same problem, but we're able to do it a lot more collaboratively, a lot more respectfully focused on the, the problem that we're trying to solve versus on the person. So I think that's the the first The second is it just gives, for me personally, just a greater sense of calm and being able to be a lot more objective and be able to respond to situations versus react to situations impulsively. So I I think because of that, it helps me to just be more even keeled to make better decisions than if I were just
0: reacting. So let's talk a little bit about yourself now. What are your favorite products and why are they your favorite?
1: I think one of my favorite products is Google Photos. And I've always been a photo buff and was an early adopter of digital photography, then digitized all my past film photos. I joined a startup called iFi, which was in this digital photography world. And I probably have over 100,000 photos at this point in Google Photos. And what, and I've used Picasa in the past and uh, then, you know, which morphed into Google Photos. And what I think they've just done such an amazing job of is moving photos from just being this archival, cloud-based archival system, mainly as insurance to keep your photos safe, to a way that I can actually enjoy my photos from the past. And they've done the heavy lifting, but it's all in the background. So simple examples like I can just do a search for my son, my son's name and birthday, and it will pull up all the birthday pictures from from the past that he is in. And so there's a ton of technology and heavy lifting that goes into making that possible. The face detection, face recognition to identify this same person who has changed so much from a baby to now he's twelve, being able to detect that that's the same person. How do you detect that? It's a birthday celebration. I haven't declared to them what his birthday is. So what are the artifacts in the photos that uh, indicate it might be a birthday? So simple things like that, or being able to put a name and a beach, right? just the word beach, and then it pulls up all kinds of beach photos. Obviously, things like location, et cetera. Proactively, it'll generate albums for me around Mother's Day, Father's Day. I just re- recently created a, an album for my dad on his 80th birthday that pulled together pictures from when he was a kid that have been digitized all the way till a few weeks ago. And I was able to do that in just a few minutes that I can't even imagine how many hours or days I would have spent doing this in other systems. So I think they've just done a fantastic job of making something really useful. And I know how hard it is, but they've really kept all of that hard tech in the background and kept the simplicity upfront for the users.
0: So we've covered a lot today, you know, if you had to summarize your words of wisdom that you'd want to impart to others in product leadership, what would those words be?
1: To be curious and to be curious on two fronts. One is to to push hard on what problem we're trying to solve. And I think it's so easy for folks, especially product managers in technology, where we're serving customers who are also technophiles, where they're giving us very specific suggestions and say, hey, Eric, I want you to put this button here. I want you to add this feature there. It's very easy because they're speaking our language to just respond to that and give them what they're asking for. But to be able to stay curious and and really push and why are they asking for that? How might we solve that problem and not get locked into the solution? I think that's one element of being curious. The other element of being curious is to really look beyond what immediate competitors are doing and look at what best-in-class people are doing, regardless of the industry. So, for us, it would be not just looking at what what are other meditation apps doing, but we are really in in the business of helping people establish healthy routines. So, who are best-in-class, not just in apps, but anywhere in the world, on creating healthy routines, and what are they doing, and what could we learn from that? So, I think being curious on both those two fronts would uh, enable people to create better products that really solve meaningful problems.
0: So one final question for you today, three words to describe yourself? I think I've been called a, a
1: translator. And what that means is being able to translate things from different people into ways that are, that are meaningful to other folks. So being able to translate a customer problem into to a way that designers can understand or engineers can understand, etc. The second one is probably a collaborator where I'm able to work very closely with people across the organization. And I think I bring that strong sense of empathy with uh, particular challenges that they are facing because I've worked in many of those roles myself. So that would be a second one. And then a third one would probably be a detective. And it's this notion of a curious mind of really digging for what is the problem that we're solving. And I love the five whys approach or a jobs to be done approach to really push on that and, and dig deep to find what the problems are, and then to also dig and go wide on what solutions might be for those kind of problems from anywhere in the world. So those were my three, translator, collaborator, and detective.
0: Thanks, this was great, I appreciate your time.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Eric, this was fun.
0: This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com an online magazine by and for product people.